Thanks for joining us today. We believe God is going to do great things in your life and we want to hear about it. Send us your story at mystory@seminacy.com to let us know what he's done for you through this ministry. If you'd like to partner with us or bless us with a financial gift, go to seminacy.com and give an amount that works best for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. This is our week five, the last week of our 30-day church challenge. We've been looking at the fact that church is not a place to attend, pick up girls, scout some candidates for your business. It's a family to belong to. That's its primary. Now, you might meet a spouse, of course, and you might do business, but you don't pick one for that reason. You pick a family. And so we are first and foremost a family. We're not a Republican family. We're not a white family. We're not a Democrat family. We're not a Hispanic family. We're a family where there's no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female. I'm just quoting scripture. I know that's a terrible thing to do. We don't want truth to get in the way of our prejudices, but that's the way Jesus found it. So we want everybody to feel a welcome here. We want it to be part of your family, not just our family. And uh, all together, we can make a big difference. So we said in week one, we talked about community, about knowing and being known. You can't be known. People can't help you in your life. God could have a gift for you with another person, but it'll do you no good if you don't. Well, I'm introverted. Well, then the cure is go connect. Holy cow. Well, I'm an alcoholic. Well, the cure for that is to get in an AA program and trust God's grace and power to deliver you. I mean, you can't just say, I'm this, and stay that way. You know, one of the dumbest things I ever heard is people say, well, just be yourself. Well, what if you're stupid? What if you're arrogant, selfish, manipulative, and stupid? No, you don't want to be yourself. You, you, you want to change. So, connect with people. God has good plans through people that open doors that can solve problems in your life. So God said, it's not good to be an introvert. It's not good to be alone. Now, if God said it, I'm going to believe it. So get yourself hooked up and connected somewhere. Week two, we talked about worship. And God says in our time, our talent, and our treasure, the things that we do, it's not just clapping, lifting hands, and singing. It's everything we do is a form of worship. We do it unto the Lord. Week three, we talked about spiritual growth through prayer and through God's Word. Just like we eat steak and potatoes, we eat God's Word. We grow strong spiritually. Week four, last week, we talked about stewardship, that God has put in our hands talent, time, and money, treasure. And he holds us accountable as to how we steward what actually belongs to him. So this is our last challenge. We looked at the five challenges of the church. And so here's challenge number five, outreach. And we use as our text, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's God's word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They, they sold property, possessions to give to anybody that had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, that's communion. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice that last verse. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. So my question is, how do you suppose that happened? I mean, certainly there was a magnetism to this early church by their devotion, their unity, their generosity, the fact that no other religion on earth at that time allowed women entrance, allowed Jew or Gentile to be together. It was unlike anything ever seen on the face of the earth. But nobody would have known any of that unless the members of that church had gone out and shared that with the friends and brought them into the church. Nobody in today's culture in America, according to Barna's statistics, is out looking for a church to attend. Churches that are growing grow because members go out and bring their friends. That's how. You, the dying churches have a sign up, everybody welcome. But ain't nobody there. What a dumb thing. No, you grow, you know, I had a nice halibut fish last night. But it was an amazing truth for me to discover that fish did not swim into that restaurant. Somebody sent a boat out to get that fish to bring him into that restaurant. And you're going to have to send out, we have to send out boats, which are us, and every other outreach we can think of to touch people who are far from God to bring them in. So there's no connection more important and more effective than you. People are not drawn in by signs or brochures, but by people. And so that's why I bring this, because that's the challenge to us who are believers. So I'm calling this session Lost and Found, Reaching Out to Your Relational World. Now we go to Luke 15. Luke 15, the first 10 verses, and Jesus gives three parables. The story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Let me read verse 1 through 10, Luke 15. Now the tax collectors, that is the extortioners and sinners, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I don't know where the Christians were, but they weren't there. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who voted a particular way, muttered, this man welcomes Democrats or Republicans and eats with him. You know what I'm doing. I'm showing you he's inclusive, not exclusive. Churches are exclusive. They're supposed to be inclusive. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, what do you do, sweetheart? Well, I'm an exotic dancer at the Zebra Men's Club. Welcome. We're glad to see you this morning. You come over here, this is meet my friend, this is so-and-so. You sit with us. We're just glad to have you this morning. He welcomed them. He didn't condone bad behavior. He welcomed them. People, you might let them in, but do they feel welcome? And say they don't unless you connect with them. Okay, I'm a connection guy. You know, if I like you, I like you. If I don't like you, you're going to know I don't like you. I, I connect. And you're to be this kind of a person as well. And in the church, we're supposed to connect where these people feel that welcome. He welcomes sinners. Why, he even goes out and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost sheep till he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, hey, rejoice with me. We're going to party. I found my lost sheep. 
Then Jesus said, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she immediately light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and said, come on, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the first story is about a shepherd who loves his sheep. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, saving face doesn't mean a lot to us, but it means everything to them. And when Jesus said, which one of you that loses his sheep, the answer would be, why, none of us. None of us would ever lose a sheep. It's unthinkable. A sheep might wander off, but we would never be so careless as to lose one. So this is the story of a shepherd like none they've ever imagined. So the shepherd has 100 sheep. He leaves the 99 in the open country. He doesn't bring them back to the city or corral them for the night. He leaves them in potential danger to go and find the one that's lost. And you're thinking probably like me, well, that's irresponsible. That's, uh, that's, that's ludicrous. Yeah, unless you're the one that he's after. That shows you how important and how valuable you are. Just the one. More important than the 99. And when he finds the sheep, he puts it on his shoulders, brings it home, throws a party. Rejoice with me, he says to his friends. I found what I lost. The second story has the same hypothetical uh, scenario. Supposing one of you, what woman among you having 10 coins and loses one of them? And to save face, the answer would be none of us. No woman in the Middle Eastern village would ever lose a coin. They were too rare and valuable in an agrarian culture. The woman has 10 coins, which represented her dowry. That's her life savings. That was to take care of her because women had no rights in Middle Eastern society and don't have much even today. And because of it, they got a dowry when they were wed, and they usually put it into jewelry around their neck or arms for safekeeping so they could keep track of it. So the lost coin is so precious, she scours the house until she finds it. When she does, she calls her friends to party, saying, Rejoice with me, I found what I lost. So what this woman does is kind of astounding to the hearers. This woman Jesus is describing is like no woman they had previously known. Then he tells a third story. And instead of reading this one, I'll just walk you through it. The story of the prodigal son. Now, the story progresses. It's a story basically and primarily about the father. A father who is a nobleman like no Middle Eastern father anybody listening to Jesus could imagine. It begins in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The prodigal son asked his father to divide the inheritance. The son takes his share of the estate, moves to a foreign country, blows it in wild living, comes back home, is welcomed into the family in a surprising way. That's how we hear it in a Western culture hearing. That's not how they hear that in a Middle Eastern culture totally different. So he says, divide your inheritance so I can have my share of this state. Now, the father hasn't even died yet. So this would be shameful, unimaginable in Eastern culture, Middle Eastern culture. 
He's saying, basically, I wish you were dead. So this is reproach and shame and could actually cause the son to legally be stoned to death. Now, the next words are in verse 13, not long after that. The younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and squandered all of his wealth on wild living. Notice he didn't leave home immediately. It says not long after he got the inheritance. He has to liquidate his inheritance. He's got to find buyers for all of his inheritance. He's got family jewelry. He's got portions of livestock, portion of family land, and so on. And the only people he can sell to were people who are in the village. So Jesus is telling this story, and the listeners are imagining this brash young man going from door to door trying to liquidate the family estate. What a shame and a disgrace they're thinking. Everybody behind every door knew this boy had insulted his father, shamed his family, and brought shame on the village, wishing the patriarch were already dead. So he's disgraced the village, disgraced his father and family. Now he's doing the unthinkable, selling off all the possessions that have been in the family for generations. Now the son is starting to feel the heat as the scorn of the villager starts to mount, and he feels pressure to get out of town. He leaves as soon as he sells the last of the possessions. Now the villagers are openly agnostic towards him. They, they hate him. They want to kill him, spit on him. They want to do him harm. Now, as soon as all transactions are completed, he heads out of town to the far country, and it's in the faraway country that he descends into his own personal hell. The text says in verse 13, he squandered his wealth in wild living. He wasted it in plain sight of the citizens of this faraway country who are also Middle Easterners. They're unimpressed with this rebellious, frivolous young man who's now out of money. Now, the polite way in Middle Eastern culture to get rid of somebody who's hanging on you don't want isn't to come out and tell them to go home. It's to assign them a job, a task you know they'll refuse. So when this son asks for a job, one of the citizens offers to make him a pig herder. And as a Jewish boy, that's a job he cannot accept. Pigs are unclean according to the law of Moses. And they have to be fed seven days a week, which meant he couldn't keep the Sabbath. So to everybody's surprise, the son accepts the unacceptable, this job. But it's terrible. It doesn't pay enough even to keep him out of hunger. So in this hole of self-pity, he starts to think honestly. He comes to himself. He's thinking a little bit rationally now. He knows there's no life for him where he is. He can't go home to his father. He's insulted and shamed him. He's a failure. He has nothing to offer the father. And Middle Eastern sons were supposed to provide for their fathers in their old age, not live off of them. And all the kids in here ought to be listening up real good. <laughs> We've been carrying you long enough. And your responsibility is to look after us in old age. Remember, they didn't have Social Security or pensions or retirements at all. So now the prodigal's thinking, I can't go back home. I can't get to live in the family house as a son, but just maybe I could go home and ask for a job as a hired servant. So he comes up with a plan. I'll go home. I'll admit I was a fool. And instead of asking to be reinstated as a son, I'll just ask, could I please just be hired on as a servant? 
Now, there's a couple of problems here. Number one, will the father take him back after he's been publicly humiliated, insulted, and shamed? And then what about the villagers? How are they going to receive him? Remember how they felt when he left? He had disgraced them all in the village by his shameful behavior. You add to that, he's lost all of his money to despise Gentiles, and the prodigal has no solution for placating the villagers when he gets back home. He's going to have to endure their shaming as he walks through the town on his way to his father's house. But to the father's house, he decides to go. And this is where the father comes into the story full force. Remember, this is a story about the kingdom of God. This is a story about the grace of God. And this father represents our heavenly father. Now, the father knows two things. Number one, this immature, shameful, repulsive son is a flop. He's going to fail. Daddy had no doubt about it. He knows that even if the son comes home, he'll probably not be a successful CEO, but more likely a beggar. The second thing the father knows, villagers are not going to treat him well. Since his departure, sounds like church, doesn't it? Since his departure, all the townspeople have told him openly and repeatedly he should never have granted this inheritance in the first place. This son is a shameful rascal and deserves death. So he knows if the son ever does return, the first person he passes coming into that village is going to spread the word. The crowd will gather. They will spit on him. They will mock him and perhaps stone him. He knows that that son, in order to get home, is going to have to endure the scorn of the crowd with every step he takes through that village. The father knows it. So when the son returns, the father does five things that would be considered outrageous, shameful, degrading in Middle Eastern society. Number one, the first thing the father does, he runs. Now, when word comes to him, his son has been seen on the outskirts of the village, the father runs to him. Instead of letting the son run the gamlet in the village, the father runs the gamlet for him. That's an outrageous thing because no Middle Eastern nobleman with flowing robes ever runs anywhere. It's disgraceful. But he lifts his robe, exposing his ankles. And in our culture, you've got to remember, in their culture, this would be disgraceful. So he lifts that robe, exposes his ankles. He runs down the road through the village in front of the villagers. He's humiliating himself. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said, great men never run in public, but the father does. And Jesus explains why in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So the father has compassion. That's how he feels about his children. That's how God feels about you. This is a picture of our God, of his grace, of his love for you, that everybody matters. He's totally motivated by the love for his wayward children. Now, as the father runs through the village, he knows he's creating a spectacle. He knows what he's doing is going to attract a crowd. He knows that they're going to talk about his humiliation in the village for the rest of his life. But he cares more about his son than he does about his reputation. Do we care more about God's people that are lost far away from him or that have for some reason gone astray than we do our reputation as a church. The crowd Jesus 
came to, the religious crowd says, oh, they labeled him. Oh, he, he eats with sinners. He's a friend of sinners. I love, bring it on. I want to be known as a friend. Oh, he, he, he had who speak? Didn't he vote Democratic or Republican? Can't you put this into your own cultural perspective to see what, he's blowing it out of the water. He doesn't give a rip about his reputation. What he cares about is his kid. And if he cares that much about people, I ought to care that much about people. You're more worried about what they do or their past. Oh, she's been married three times. Well, thank God it wasn't five. Let's go. Let's see if we can get a keeper here. Right? Hey, lighten up a little bit, okay? I hate to carry this whole thing by myself. I want you to get in this picture and think with me to make this real, real because it is real. Jesus, I mean, the Pharisees and all the religious crowd are listening to Jesus tell this, and they're, they're blown away. They're completely stunned. It's unthinkable to them. So now imagine this from the son's perspective. He knows that to get to the father, he's got to go through that town, and he knows that town hates his guts. He knows there's no way he can get to father without enduring their scorn. But he has to get to the father if he's going to become a servant. So he sets his jaw and he walks the last few miles towards the town. Sure enough, somebody sights him. Word starts spreading. People are going to gather. He's about to endure the worst moments of his life. As he comes to the edge of the village, he expects to see rocks and jeers and angry faces. Instead, what he sees coming towards him is his father with his robe pulled up, exposing his ankles, running towards him. And to his utter amazement, rather than experience ruthless hostility that he deserves for what he's done, he finds a visible demonstration of the love of his father. Now, second thing the father does when he sees the son is he kisses him. And in the Greek, it's repeatedly kissed him. If you've ever watched the news, even to this day in the Middle East, men kiss, kiss we shake hands, they kiss each other on the cheeks. And fathers hug their sons and kiss them repeatedly on their cheeks. They don't French kiss them, okay? They kiss them on the cheeks. That's the culture. And he's just kissing repetitively this lost son that's come home. They're embracing eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder. Daddy's got him wrapped up. Now, in his mind, this son has been picturing himself coming home and abasing himself. He had rehearsed this scene over and over. First, he'd kiss the father's hand as an act of submission. Then he'd kiss his father's feet. But the father won't let him. He's put his arms around him, and he's kissing him on both cheeks. The son can't bend. He can't stoop. He can't get over. He's caught in his father's arms. All he can do is accept the father's unconditional love. Now, he had been planning this reunion speech for a long time before he got home. Verse 19, he said, I will set out. I'll go back to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me just one of your hired men. That's his plan. Now look at the speech he actually gave as the father is holding him. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Something's missing from the speech. He, his request to become a servant. Why is it missing? Because he can't kneel. He can't carry out his plan. Daddy's got him wrapped up and kissing him. He can't do what he wants to do. 
which is obeys himself. So with his father's arms wrapped around him, he can't get to the ground. And kiss after kiss comes to his cheeks. He's being overwhelmed by the father's love. Now, you know I'm a strong guy with strong passions, and I'm not very emotional. But when I just think about that, I put myself in that picture. I thought, Daddy, Daddy got a hold of me. And sometimes even when I don't like me, he does. And it just, it just tenders your heart. It just makes, oh, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve it. Yeah, right. So a lot of people stay out of church because they, well, they've been preached too wrong. They've got a bad theology with a mean God. And Jesus is trying to break that Old Testament uh, image by showing them what he's like. Not like you thought at all. So his plan was to earn his way back into the Father's favor. He never intended his Father to accept him back just like he was. Well, how could the Father do that? The third thing the Father does is call for a robe to be put on a son. Here's his exact words, verse 22. But the Father said to his servants, quick, move it. Go get the best robe. Put it on my son. Now, who owned the best robe in the family? Oh, Daddy did. You can bet on it. If anybody's going to have a robe, I'm going to have one. And it'll be Giorgio Armani or somebody. The father and son are standing on the edge of the village. The father wants the whole village to know he has accepted his son. So he sends the servants to get his own best robe so the son can wear it as they walk home through the village. What does Jesus do for us? He takes our sinfulness, clothes me in his robe of righteousness. Everybody knows Ricky G has been accepted. He's accepted by the Father through the Son's work at the cross. He has become sin for me who knew no sin, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm telling you, I'm as righteous as Jesus. Now, don't ask my wife, but ask God, and he'll tell you, yes, he is. He legally is. There's a big gap between what I am legally and what's working. I think over the years it's gotten closer, but... It'll never be perfect, but you get a picture of this. So that's letting everybody in town know, that's my boy. He's accepted. Don't mess with him. The fourth thing the father does, call for a ring and sandals. Now, the ring was a signet ring. The father would use that to sign legal documents. It would compare to a Visa card or American Express. It was the means of doing business as well. It meant you were an empowered member of the family. Now, the sandals were a sign he is a free man, not a slave. Servants, slaves, did not get shoes. You had to become a free man in order to have shoes or sandals. Slaves walked barefoot. And finally, the father says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Now, you may never have realized the importance of this one, verse 23. He didn't bring a fatted goat or a chicken or a sheep. But a big old cow, a big fatted calf. Why? Because it had enough meat on it to feed the whole village. You see what the father's doing? He's inviting the whole village to share in his joy. He doesn't want the son only to be reconciled to him. He wants the son to be reconciled to the village. He wants everybody to have a relationship with his son. And if daddy calls you calls you son, I call you brother. That's it. I don't care how you voted. I don't care what your race is. I don't care what your nationality is. If Jesus is your Lord, then you become his daughter. You become my sister. 
You become my brother. Well, <laughs> you walk around town and you tell me that's true. It is not true. It's true biblically, but it's not true experientially. We got country club churches. We got Democrat churches. We got Republican churches. We got white churches, black. We got everything but a Bible church. And that's why I don't fit in very good, and I know it. And you know, I don't care. <laughs> I didn't take this job because I care. You know, I'd, I'd much rather. <laughs> well, he's not spiritual. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm just telling the truth. I got drafted in this job. I didn't volunteer because I didn't have anything else to do. I couldn't do anything. I got drafted. Anybody ever been drafted? You don't even get to vote when you get drafted. God just says, you're mine. Come here. I don't care. You can do, I, got, I got heel marks that drag for miles for about three years because I don't want to go. I felt like Moses. You know, don't send me. Send, send Nate. He, he, he self-destructive. <laughs> don't send me. I'm not qualified. I'm not holy enough. So when the son gets found, the father throws the mother of all parties to celebrate his return. He's overjoyed. He's so happy. Now, those are three stories Jesus tells, and in every one of them, something goes missing, right? So, number one, everything that's missing matters. The sheep matters to the shepherd. The coin matters to the woman. The son matters to the father. And people far from God matter to him. Lost people matter to God. We're not keepers of an aquarium. We're fishers of men. And the only ones out there are bad, like you. Some of you have been in church institutionalized for so long, you forgot you're a sinner saved by grace. Well, I don't, and I don't. You're like the other son. One son rebelled against the father. The other son says, well, you owe me because I didn't get drunk and I didn't smoke. You don't. See, you get nothing from God except by grace. It's unearned, unmerited. It's not behavioral modification. It's faith that he did. He accepted me, made me righteous. I got nothing to brag about but him. And that means people not here matter to God. You realize that? It's, do you know Easter's coming? And in America, 25% of all visitors to every church in America, 25% come on Easter. Out of a whole 12 months, 25% of all visitors come on Easter. Christmas, 25%. That's 50. The other 50 through the 12 months of a year. That means Easter coming is a big fish day. That means everybody needs to be on your best smiling behavior. You need to hug, shake hands, smile. In, introduce yourself. You say, well, but I'm a bit shy. Well, we're going to get everybody doing it. It ought to make it easy. Just introduce. Say, hey, I'm Joe. Maybe they've been here 12 years and you just never met them, but introduce yourself anyway. You still make a friend. I want people to walk away saying, man, what a friendly place. You know, the fact that you will allow somebody to come in doesn't mean you accept them. You ever been somewhere you got in, but you didn't feel like anybody accepted you? Yeah, I, 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 I need to say this, it's more so for African-American than for Hispanic, but in my African-American community and the big makeup in this church, I, I, I tell my white friends all the time, I says, if you want to know how it must feel to them to go to a white church, although we're not, 
I said, then you need to go to an all-black church and then feel the feeling. So don't you want them to make you feel love and acceptance? Wouldn't I love it if some of my brothers, African-American in that church, come over and hug me and say, hey, man, and, they, and I just suddenly, I didn't feel like I'm being stared at like an Oreo cookie. I feel like <laughs> they're going to be nice to me. Well, I want my African-American friends that keep coming, I want them to know you're as much valuable here as anybody, any white cracker or anybody else, just as much so. But I want you to feel, get out of your little cultural box and feel uncomfortable occasionally so you realize how to overcome that for somebody that comes from a different background here. See, I don't want people to drive by and they say, oh, that's a rich church. I've heard that one. Somebody tell our accountant that, okay? I'd like to know. That is not true. But it's amazing how people will label you. Uh, some of my African-American friends told me that some of their uh, a pastor on the east side says, oh, you go to that white church. See, label. Now, I go to a darn good church. It's hot. It's alive. It moves. It shakes. It'll scare you. It's dangerous. White ain't got nothing to do with it. By the way, black dead's just as dead as white dead. Right? Come on, y'all not too good. I watched the movie the other night, White Men Can't Jump. I'm going to make a new one. White people can't shout. You know, I'm got a little bit of shouting in here because it's true. I'm just trying in many ways to get you to feel what, why it's so important to go out of your way to take a few extra minutes to make people feel like they really are welcome. And just outfriend them. You'll never hurt anything like that. That's a wonderful thing. Secondly, whatever's missing warrants an intentional search. In each case, what was lost gets searched for diligently, found, and reclaimed. And third and last, reclamation brings rejoicing. The shepherd, the woman, and the father all throw parties out of pure happiness that what was lost is now found. So Jesus is saying, missing things matter enough to warrant an intentional, diligent search. Find everyone who's missing and bring them to me. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't care what their occupation or past is, bring them to me. We're not looking for nice people. We're looking for anybody. Jesus said, go out in the highways and hedges, compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And I, I pray to God I can live to tear down that, that fireproof wall up there. We got 2,500 seats behind there. I want to see every seat full. I know it's a valid dream, but it won't happen by people driving by a sign. It'll be people bringing people to joy, excitement, and acceptance. And, I, I'm, and listen, I am honored at the different groups, races, and cultures that come here. And you'll notice it's not just me saying it. It's on our worship team. It's on our elder board. It's on our staff. It's all mixed. We are one mangy old scrawny dog, aren't we? We're just a, what, what breed is he? Well, <laughs> he's all mixed. We don't know. And we're all mixed. And that was the New Testament. It was all mixed. And boy, that just ticked off the religious people. And so I love it. I love a little controversy anyway. I like, as long as it's biblical, I like a little bit of controversy because I'll stand on truth. So he says, we've experienced firsthand, you and I, being lost, then being found, 
and being shown undeserved love, acceptance, and forgiveness. You get judgmental, you forgot where you came from. You forgot. You got the same grace we need to share with other people. And if you could be as wicked as this boy and, be, and see a father shame himself so bad that he's willing to degradate himself to get his boy, God says, that's how I want you to view people that walk in summit. Just like that, lift your, your robe. Now, sorry, your dress, but lift your robe and show your ankles, not your thighs, and move towards those people. I'm giving you a visual picture here, okay? One final challenge uh, is to care about what Jesus cares about. Do something shepherd-like, woman-like, or father-like to bring missing in and invite them home. So here's two options this week. Pray an eight-word prayer. God, give me your heart for lost people. Give me your heart for lost people. That takes you about eight seconds. It's powerful. It could change your life. And it could help you to recognize an opportunity. And then second, share your faith with somebody. You don't have to be a theologian. You just tell your story. Hey, I was blind. Now I see. I was in my third marriage. Life for me was spiraling out of control. I was all focused on being successful or wealthy. And I met someone. They took me to church, introduced me to Jesus. And my life has been transformed. It's been changed. See, nobody can argue with your story. They can argue with theology. They can argue with doctrine, but they can't argue with you, your story. This is who I was. This is what I was doing. This is where I was, and this is what happened. And they go like, wow. I have a dental friend, who, a dentist, who I like very, very much, very skilled, and I'm laying in the chair. And naturally, why do dentists want to talk when they put three things in your mouth? sucking and noise and squirting water and they want to talk like you can carry on a conversation but I'm laying back in the chair getting my teeth cleaned and checked or whatever and he's the first time I ever met him and he's getting my life story from rock and roll to commercial piloting and, and military and what do you do now I said well I pastor a church and he just stopped what he was doing he said how did you get from there to there. I tell my story. I just tell my story. And, he, and you know, he went, wow. And it's particularly good if they actually like you. That helps. That helps a lot. But they're listening. So you never know what kind of a door that might open. Share it. That means this week's reading in your 30-day challenge workbook, you're going to come across a simple method for explaining Christianity called The Bridge. And your challenge is to do that this week. Let's bow for prayer. You've been a great crowd today. I think you got the message. Lost things matter to God. Lost people matter to God. His value for those people has not changed regardless of their behavior any more than the Father's love for that kid changed because of that kid's bad behavior. We rate people on behavior. God never changes his love for you based on your behavior. I, see, I'm a human. That's tough. But for God, it's a God thing, which makes him so attractive. No religion on earth can compete with that grace. Nobody. Every other religion, you've got to earn it. 
with Christianity, you receive it. Just like the prodigal. You, and, and out of humility, you love the Father, you serve the Father, but what you got came undeserved and unearned. Thanks for joining us today, and may God richly bless you. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.